Hey everybody, this is Ben dropping you a quick note. Our editors have been working hard to get episodes finished to release on schedule with the reading of the week. Our hope is that listeners will have the chance to engage with the content and share meaningful ideas in their circles of family, friends, and church. In order to meet this goal, this episode has been released with minimal editing. We are looking for additional volunteers to join the team and help with editing, social media management, and content creation. If you are interested, please reach out to us on Facebook or email latterdaypeacestudies at gmail.com. You can also donate to the project, helping us cover the costs of things like website hosting and podcast platform fees. Donations can be made through PayPal by going to our website, latterdaypeacestudies.org, clicking Get Involved, and scrolling down to the donate box. Thanks so much to all who have helped out and donated over the years. We are sincerely grateful. Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, welcome back, everybody. We are going to be covering Ezra and Nehemiah today. I'm going to make some notes about last time and talk a little bit about Chronicles before we get into Ezra and Nehemiah. But first, I'm going to introduce my co-host this time. I have got Kyle Swingle here with me. Welcome, Kyle. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so Kyle has been involved with Latter-day Peace Studies for quite a while, doing a lot of editing for us. It's very much appreciated, all of your hard work over the years. I don't know. How long have you been editing, Kyle? We started, like, when Shiloh first reached out asking for people to help with the editing process to offload you guys a little bit. Okay. Did you do any Book of Mormon editing? I don't remember at what point. Okay. So you've been doing it for for quite a while. You're you're quite the veteran here with uh, with that. (laughs) So that's for sure. (laughs) Tell people a little bit about yourself, Kyle. Let's see. I live in good old Happy Valley, Utah, Lehigh to be exact. I'm father of five with a sixth on the way. Wow. I am going back to school for getting my associates in marriage and family therapy and i want to continue and get my bachelor's in psychology i would like to one day be a clinical psychologist but i really want to do some research as well the pathway that they give you or that they've presented so far at least is like well you can either be this this or this and you have to pick now but i'm pretty sure you can make you know lateral moves as you progress in your career. I've really enjoyed working with this. Everything with the the Latter-day Peace Studies has been absolutely phenomenal, and I'm so happy that I get to be a part of it. Well, sure is good to have you, Kyle. I'm so glad that you agreed to record this episode with me. Obviously, I am eagerly awaiting Christopher's return, but at the same time, I'm also really liking these opportunities that I've had to get to know some other people and record with them. I've got to do an episode with Jeff Goddard, with Tom Bogle, now with you. My plan is to record with my wife when we do Esther next. Excited about that. And then Christopher is absolutely determined to be back to record 
the episode on Job. He does not want to miss that for his life. So that's what we're shooting for. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Christopher will have all sorts of insights for, for that episode. So I wanted to first make a couple clarifications slash corrections from last time. Two things mostly related to Jewish history in Egypt. First of all, I think I said something about Jeremiah, the prophet, going into Egypt. It is true that he did go into Egypt, but he didn't go with the group that we were talking about at the time. So there was a group of people that killed the governor and then fled into Egypt. That wasn't a group that included Jeremiah. Jeremiah was actually taken into exile and then returned back to Jerusalem, and then he went into Egypt afterward. I really simplified some of this history, and it's much more complex. To that point, the Jewish community in Egypt is also much more complex than I gave it credit for. There were multiple communities all over Egypt of Jews, and they went there at various times. And the community that went there during the Babylonian exile isn't necessarily directly related to the community at Alexandria, which is the community that ended up doing the translation of the Septuagint later on. And so I think I made that connection where there isn't necessarily a connection. So apologize for that. But it's much more complex than I gave it credit for. And when I went and did a little bit of reading on it, I realized, okay, so I probably should say something about this because that wasn't just a, a little mess up on my part. I feel like that was something that needs to be corrected. The next thing I want to talk about is the fact that we are essentially skipping Chronicles. Now, there's two reasons we're skipping Chronicles. First off, the Come Follow Me curriculum skips Chronicles. Second, if we were to not skip Chronicles in terms of like trying to record podcasts, this would require a significant additional time commitment on my part in particular, but also on the part of the editors, you, you Kyle, to get that out. And at the same time, there's not a drastically huge amount of unique content within the books of Chronicles that we kind of didn't already cover in our discussion within first and second Samuel and first and second Kings. And so I'll say while the come follow me curriculum skips chronicles and we're not doing explicit episodes on it, I did not skip reading it. I did read chronicles. It's just that it's largely a retelling of the historical account that you find from second Samuel to second Kings. The primary focus of first chronicles is David and the primary focus of 2 Chronicles is Solomon. David is treated pretty well within Chronicles, probably with more respect or admiration than he would have been in the books of Samuel and Kings. But like the books of Samuel and Kings, Chronicles was originally one book, right? So we have First and Second Samuel. It was really just one book, Book of Samuel. First and Second Kings was really just one book, Book of Kings. First and Second Chronicles is really just one book, Book of Chronicles. And to that point that we'll get to in here in a bit, Ezra Nehemiah is actually not two books. It was really just one book originally. It's been divided in our quote unquote Christian Bible into Ezra and Nehemiah, but it was originally just a single book. The book of Chronicles was probably written sometime in the late fourth century BC. So this is post-exilic. It's looking back at the history. It's pulling from a bunch of different sources to chronicle again the history. That's why it kind of starts with a whole genealogy, starting with Adam bringing all the way up to the time of the kings, up to David. 
And so a lot of these sources, they would have been familiar to the people at the time. And there's a lot of other books that are kind of sampled within Chronicles that kind of help scholars place it within the late 4th century, at least its composition. There's just a couple things I want to mention from the text of Chronicles. If we go to 1 Chronicles chapter 20, starting in verse 1, this is the exact same events that are covered in 2 Samuel 11, which is David's army going out to battle, led by Joab, and David stays at Jerusalem. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, this is where he sees Bathsheba. He calls for her to be brought to the palace and then lies with Bathsheba and then gets Uriah and has Uriah killed. So that whole episode there. In Chronicles chapter 20, it doesn't mention anything about Bathsheba and doesn't mention anything about Uriah. And so the whole idea that the great sin of David with Bathsheba and Uriah in 2 Samuel, that is not a thing in Chronicles, right? That's just like completely ignored in Chronicles. Instead, David's great sin in Chronicles is actually mentioned in the next chapter, chapter 21. And this sin has nothing to do with Bathsheba or Uriah. It has to do with him counting the people, him calling a census of the people. This would have presumably been for taxation purposes. Completely evil. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) A census was considered sort of bad luck. There's various reasons for this. David's General Joab, he says, oh, you know, God is the one prospering us. Why do we need to know the number of people? Again, the reason would be I need to know the people so I know to tax them. This act is condemned by God. And David explicitly says in relation to this that he, quote, sinned greatly. Okay, so it's almost like the... Second Samuel focuses on the great sin of David being the rape of Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, whereas Chronicles focus on the great sin being the census of the people. That act is condemned by God because it shows a lack of trust in God and God's covenant with the people. So the next thing I want to talk about with Chronicles is in chapter 22, First Chronicles. This is David basically on his deathbed. And he's speaking to his son, Solomon. This is, again, 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 7 and 8. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build an house unto the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly, and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build an house unto my name because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Again, this is David recounting to his son Solomon that he could not build the temple because the Lord told him that all the blood he had shed and all the wars he had fought essentially disqualified him from building the temple. The question kind of comes up like, what would it be about shedding blood that disqualifies someone from building the temple? If you remember back to the book of Leviticus, The Levites were not supposed to participate in battle. They weren't supposed to go out and fight the battles with the people because killing would make them ritually impure, unclean. So they were really a representation of the people to God. And they were supposed to be an example or an ideal for the people ultimately to follow. So the implication 
that I see here is that warfare is incompatible with the holiness that God is calling his people to be part of in the building of the temple. In fact, we see when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah that the people come back to the land and they build the temple, but they do so without conquest. And there's little, if any, mention of violence or blood being shed. Now, there are some moments of like contention and threats, but we don't see people being killed or blood being shed on behalf of building the temple. That kind of brings us here into to Ezra and Nehemiah on that point. Ezra and Nehemiah, those were actually supposed to be, it's supposed to be one book. And they got separated into two books around 1448. There's something that the Ezra, right, accounts the returning of these two groups as they're trying to restore their homeland after 70 years away in captivity. Their struggles to resist these foreign influences, we had mentioned before, like the text refers to them as adversaries or enemies. So there's definitely kind of a narrative going on that they're in hostile territory as they come back. And although this the date is debated among scholars and pretty difficult to pinpoint because the, the book spans, you know, a century of history, but they suggest that the book of Ezra and by extension Nehemiah was written somewhere between 450 and 400 BC. That's a that's a huge time. I, I think often we tend to see the scriptures as they were writing them down as it was happening. Hmm. But Ezra, he didn't even set foot in what was then Jerusalem being rebuilt, right? Until nearly 60, if not 80 years after the first group was sent in. So there's definitely some recounting of history based off of whatever information the author had, because there's definitely an overarching narrator. Like we get the voice of Ezra, we get the voice of of Nehemiah, but then there's also this other author that we don't know who they were, what their name was, or anything like that. But we have them to thank for this record of, of these two individuals. Yeah, Ezra is a scribe. He's an extremely important figure in Jewish history from a scriptural point of view. He was the great scholar that helped make the scriptures a part of the Jewish post-exilic tradition. And we're going to see here, you know, his role is in reforming the community under the Torah. Nehemiah was a little more of a political leader. He's officially the governor appointed by the Persian king to rule the Judean province. So to kind of pick up from the story of last time, the Jews go into exile. Babylonians come. They destroy the walls of the city. They destroy the temple. And then they take the people captive. Remember, all except the poorest and they take them into Babylon. So this is a destruction of the city, the temple, and the community. And so in Ezra and Nehemiah, what we see is a rebuilding of the temple, of the community, and of the wall, you know, representative of the city of Jerusalem. As the Jews go into exile into Babylon, then what happens is the Persian Empire takes over Babylon. And so 
they kind of acquire all the assets, so to speak, <laughs> of the Babylonians. <laughs> Clean house. <laughs> yeah. So we have Cyrus the Great, very important historical figure in, in any textbook whatsoever. He was a much more, you might say, pluralistic king than average for an ancient monarch. He sponsored a lot of different religious projects and temples of all sorts for different peoples. And so there, there's not a specific record, like a Persian record, that corroborates what we have here in the text of, of Cyrus the Great sponsoring their temple. But it certainly fits the historical context and fits the character of Cyrus. Like there's many examples of him doing this with other people. So it totally makes sense that he would do this. Cyrus's title, like other Persian kings, is King of Kings. So the Persians would go in and they would take over kingdoms and they would allow kings to kind of stay in place and they would become vassals, essentially. But the, the king in Persia was the king of kings. And this phrase starts pervading the whole culture at the time and becomes, you know, he's the, the highest of the high. And later, when we get things like Isaiah writing and, and Jeremiah and other prophets, they use this term uh, to refer sometimes to Cyrus, other times in a messianic way. And so Christians, when Jesus came, they take this term and this has been applied to Jesus as the king of kings. And so that's why we refer to Jesus as the king of kings. Actually, that term originated with with the Persians, with Cyrus. Yeah, it's like almost like chest thumping, right? Sure. For, <laughs> for their beliefs. It's yeah. like, well, our God is the king of kings over your gods kind right. of thing. Yeah. So this is the time of classical Greece and Rome. We get a lot of good, solid, I mean, as, as solid as it can be, I guess, ancient actual historical accounts starting at this point. You know, Herodotus and Livy, these historians of the ancient world. And so we're really starting to get more detail about how these peoples interacted and things that happened. This time we're going in, in this, we're talking about the rebuilding of the temple, of the community and the people and the wall of the city. But we're skipping over a decent period of time and not just a period of time, but also a geographic location because there's going to be books later on, you know, the next one is Esther and so on. These are books that take place both in time and space in exile. So during the exilic time, but then also in uh, foreign lands. And so we're kind of skipping over that part of it to come to this. The reason is because that's how our Bible is laid out currently. But chronologically, we're starting to jump around a little bit now. So far, the Old Testament has been more or less in chronological order. Now we're starting to get, we're going to start jumping around both in time and space quite a bit. And so we'll get back <laughs> to the the exilic themes in later books. So next week, you know, we start with, with Esther, which is an explicitly exilic story. Yeah. The book of Ezra in of itself is chronological mess, right? <laughs> <laughs> it jumps around so much. But it's, like I was saying before, it's probably just what they were having to work with as they're trying to compile this, you know, nearly a century after the first events transpired. And so, I mean, jumping into that, it's about these, what I said earlier, these two groups 
that are going back to more or less refound Jerusalem. And this first group of returning Jews was led by, I'm sure I'm going to butcher a lot of these names, <laughs> so bear with me, Bazar Zerubbabel, yeah. right? Zerubbabel, yeah. Zerubbabel yeah, or Zerubbabel, yeah. What a Tower of Babel, Tower of Babel. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and here they come from under the decree of Cyrus to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, some scholars believe that Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel were one and the same, but it's more likely that Bazar was a figurehead and Zerubbabel was the actual leader. When they first started out, there were the group that they got was numbered at about 50,000. And when you actually do the math of what they show, it's actually closer to 30,000. So this kind of points to them taking with them the their women, their children. I mean, they even mention like their servants, I believe is, is the wording that they use. Yeah. Yeah. In, slaves in have 65, slaves. Right? Yeah, beside their servants and their maids, of whom there were 7,337. There were among them 200 singing men and singing women. I don't know how enslaved you are if, if you If you can afford to have own... singing men and singing women. You can afford to have your own private choir. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you've got your own, yeah, Mormon Tabernacle Choir following you around. <laughs> or, I'm sorry, the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square following yeah. you around. But... This has led some scholars to believe that they weren't so much as enslaved as they were colonized. I mean, initially, when was it King Nebuchadnezzar came through, mm -hmm. I think it was initially enslavement. But as we just talked about, they were there 70 years. And I mean, that's like at least one other generation had been raised in Babylon, right? It's definitely like a forced migration. Yeah, yeah. They definitely weren't going there willingly. But it wasn't like chattel slavery like we think of that within, you know, our history. It was they were taken into the other land and, you know, certainly taxed mm -hmm. and and so they lived in in a foreign land, but wasn't the same kind of slavery that we might conceptualize it. No, very similar to like Roman slavery, where the slaves could more or less, I, I don't know if it, it was the case here. I mean, the text doesn't give us one way or the other. In Roman society, slaves could earn their freedom, so to speak. And the slaves were even allowed to, to own something. So I wonder if that was something very similar. And like slaves had, for lack of a better word, rights in Roman society. Whereas like what you're saying, when we think of slavery, we think of like, you know, someone getting beat all the time. They have no property, no rights. They're destitute. They might only have like a loincloth to their name kind of a thing. And so this kind of gives the, the idea that they had at least some modest economic status mm -hmm. amongst, amongst themselves. And that actually comes into play a little bit later when they arrive there. That's not until a, a little bit later, but I'll get to that in just a second. This initial group was close to 50,000, even though it comes up to, like, if you actually count out the, the numbers that they're giving... It's, it's closer to 30,000. So we can assume that it wasn't just the men that were are going back. I mean, they're actually going back to reestablish Jerusalem. 
you can't reestablish a city if it's only one of the sexes. That's impossible. <laughs> right. Yeah, they had to have, have brought families. So uh, to your about slavery, I want to mention one more thing there. Remember that, you know, in the ancient Jewish mindset and in other people's as well, slavery also had religious connotations. So if you're in a foreign land, then you're also exposed or maybe even forced to worship foreign gods. And so you become a slave to those foreign gods. And so there becomes a religious sense in which you're a slave, not just a physical or social sense. And so saying that you're a slave sometimes is in the scriptures, in the text, just an indication that you are under the authority of another god. And remember, gods are geographic in the ancient mindset. And so being in another land by definition, means you're a slave because you're not in your own land where you would actually be a servant of your own God. And so the idea, the the ancient mindset idea, at least of the Jewish people or of the Israelites and their God, is that their God delivers them from the others so that they can be a slave to their God, quote unquote slave, right? Yeah, that they'd be subject to him and not to right. those gods of these right. other foreign lands. So you talked about the first two groups that come, one led by Sheshbazar. They start the construction of the temple and they get kind of the foundations done. They don't get very far. There's a lot of politics that gets in the way and stuff that happens. And then the second group would be Zerubbabel and Jeshua that come and finish the temple. Temple gets finished around 515 BC. And then there's a third group, and this is the group that Ezra's part of. And Ezra comes in around 458 BC. And this is where we have the reestablishment of the Torah as the authority in the community. And then there's a fourth group that comes in 445 BC, so just like 13 years later, that's led by Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is coming in as the Persian-appointed governor of the province, even though he is a Jew, and he's coming to rebuild the wall and repopulate the city. And so in each of these waves, obviously, you're going to have families come, but there's specific purposes to those. And in the last one with Nehemiah, we have a specific purpose in which he's trying to repopulate the actual city of Jerusalem. And so we get things like, you know, one in 10 people are required to live inside the walls of the city as a part of trying to repopulate it. One other thing I forgot to mention, when Cyrus made his decree about the rebuilding of the temple and of Jerusalem, he is addressing the, the Jewish people, right? If we pull up, we look in Ezra chapter 1 here, first couple verses are his, is, is the decree. Like if we jump to verse uh, 2, it starts, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Just stop there for a second. Here, Cyrus, he's using the title for Jehovah, the Lord God of heaven. The God of heaven wasn't used until they were in exile. So the, the Jews were taken from the land of their inheritance and dragged into to Babylon. And kind of playing off of what you were saying about 
well, back then, everybody believed the gods were more geographical areas, like they covered this mountain range or this valley or this lake or whatever it was, or this sea. The, the Jews, the children of Israel, started referring to, to Jehovah as the God of heaven. And I thought that was pretty interesting because while geographical locations change, the heavens don't for you. Like you look up into the night sky in Israel, Jerusalem, it's going to be the exact same night sky as you're going to see in Babylon. Whereas the terrain, the geography will be completely different. So kind of going back to that whole thing of like, not necessarily that they're just chest thumping, but it's this idea of like, they're still looking for and trying to connect to their God. And there's this prevailing idea of, well, no, your, your God's trapped in Jerusalem area. Your God's there with your temple. And they're saying, no, our God, he's, he's over all the earth. He's the God of heaven. I don't know if that was something that was new, but it's the first real time that this comes up. I think it's really cool that they were seeking that connection still with the, the God that they worship. Well, it's definitely an important theological development for the people so that they can maintain their identity while they're in exile. We talked a little bit about this last time, how God becomes conceptualized, pulled out of that geographic container, so to speak, in multiple ways. Like in Ezekiel, God gets presented as someone who has wheels and so he can move, right? So he can go with the people and be with them. And again, these are these are ways of describing some theological developments that are happening with the people because you can imagine they get taken into exile, they're there, and they're still feeling the presence of God and maintaining their identity. So they're like, well, okay, God is with us. So how can God be with us? So these terms, God of heaven, or or these concepts of, of how God can still be there have to find ways of expressing themselves. And so you're going to get things like this, like with God of heaven. But that is correct that it's a term that really only finds use in a post-exilic world. Some of that idea does get written back into texts and we see it appear in certain spots, like when Solomon dedicates the temple and he talks about how, oh, this is just a symbolic presence of God. This, you know, not even the heavens can contain you. This is thing Solomon says. But remember, you know, that a lot of these texts were edited and redacted after the exile. And so a lot of these theological developments would have been written back into them in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And this yeah. is how they are able to explain and justify and critique the fact that they were taken into exile and then their experience in exile. Yeah, that's something that's kind of comes up all throughout this. I mean, they keep talking about the, the return of the, the exiles, return of the faithful throughout Ezra and Nehemiah here. And in if we jump ahead here, I don't know if there's anything in the rest of chapter one that you wanted to, to cover. So I will mention something from the beginning of chapter one. One of the things that is said here when Cyrus announces they're going to go, we get something in verse five. These are the people that should go. It says the heads of the families of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred, got ready to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Okay, so a few things to mention here. 
heads of the families of Judah and Benjamin. Okay, these are the two tribes that have joined, and these are the two quote unquote not lost tribes. In our tradition, we talk about the 10 lost tribes, and we say there's 12 tribes. And so a lot of times people are like, well, which ones aren't lost? Well, in a scriptural sense, in a very real scriptural sense, the tribes that are not lost are Judah and Benjamin. Okay, all the other tribes are considered in the Israelite world, Israelite concept of, of the Old Testament lost tribes. The other thing that happens here, though, is that the priests and the Levites come. Now, remember, the Levites, they don't have a specific land of inheritance. They are supposed to be distributed among all the other tribes. So there would have been Levites among the tribe of Judah or among the tribe of Benjamin that would have gone into exile. They need to come back because you can't perform sacrifices without the authority of the priesthood that only the Levites have because it's hereditary. Remember, priesthood is passed down inside the tribe of the Levites. And then we have this phrase, everyone whose spirit God had stirred. This is a really important point here because when the people come back, they are essentially presented as the more faithful. This becomes wrapped up in this concept of the remnant, a hot button phrase that is that is co-opted by many religious movements for many purposes. But it all kind of ties back to this concept that this remnant is those whose spirit God had stirred. These are people that God has specifically chosen and selected to return back and restore the religion, the faith, the community, the people, the temple, the city of God, the way it's supposed to be. This is a very important concept, even within our religious tradition. This concept of the remnant. This comes out in the Book of Mormon a lot as well. Okay, These people, the Nephites, see themselves as a remnant. And then within our tradition, this remnant is supposed to return to restore. That's really what the whole concept of the restoration is about. Again, everyone whose spirit God had stirred. This is the remnant that Isaiah talks about. The remnant shall return. Okay, th Again, this gets co-opted in other later religious traditions, especially in Christianity and stuff, and used sometimes in a fundamentalist context to indicate that these people are more faithful because they are chosen by God for a specific work in restoring the religion the way it's supposed to be. Okay, Important point to make because, again, as these people are entering the land, they see themselves as the ones God has chosen to do something specific. And so they will refuse the help of the people who are already there. And in fact, the text calls the people who are already there adversaries, enemies. You mentioned this, Kyle. And another spot, it just calls them people of the land. This is actually a, a very generic term that is probably indicative of the people who were left behind in the exile, the poorest of the people who didn't get taken into captivity. They didn't have anything to co-opt, and so they were able to be left behind. And so these people are not seen as of the faith in the same way. They haven't gone through the exile and maintain their identity in the same way as the other people. So they're not considered to be as faithful. Also, we get this concept, especially with Nehemiah that comes in later, or Ezra and Nehemiah that comes in later, that the people have married outside of their culture 
and religious tradition and language, and this is going to corrupt their religion and their culture and their language such that then the the subsequent generations won't understand it. They won't worship correctly. And what happens when you don't worship God correctly? Well, the whole thing that just happened, Babylon comes in and destroys you and takes you into exile. So it's very, very important for these people to try to maintain their cultural purity as they have through the exile and then restore it when they come back because they want to prevent this from ever happening again. Yeah, at least right. That's their their perspective of the whole thing. And like they were kept meticulous notes on their genealogy. I mean, it comes up in Ezra 2. As they're listing off all these people that are going to be coming with them, they get to this one family, starting in verse 61 here. I'll read you this. And of the children of the priests, the children of Habiah, the children of Kaz, the children of Barzillai, which took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called after their name. 62. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore were they as polluted put from the priesthood. So in other words, basically what happens, they looked for their their names, their entries in their genealogical records, but they were not found there. And so they're excluded from the priesthood because they're seen as unclean. And it says here, and the Tershatha, which is like their their governor, said unto them that they should not eat of the most holy things till there stood up a priest with Urim and Thummim. So basically he's like, yeah, well, we need all the help we can get. (laughs) We don't want to just like exile you, kick you out, you know, from the tribe, but you can't do any of like the priestly duties till a priest, I'm assuming their chief priest or what, later became their high priest, consults their Urim and Thummim. Yeah, they can't authenticate their ancestry. And so one of the ways that this can be done, there's there's different ways this can be done. Either you can produce a verifiable pedigree or a prophet or maybe a priest who has authority and, and skill with Urim and Thummim, which are divining devices. Okay, so in our religious tradition, Joseph Smith talked about a Urim and Thummim as being something akin to a seer stone. And for him, that may have been the case. Yeah. For these people at this time, Urim and Thummim were actually like, they might have been like dice that they cast and it helped them decide yes or no. I, I know this is crude, but think Magic 8 Ball. Okay, so like you ask it a question and it just tells you. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's it's total like consult the bones kind of feel to yeah, it. Yeah, that's, that's really what it is. It's a type of divination, but it's considered as legitimate, even though like all other divination within the tradition is condemned is something that, you know, survived within the record and the text and within the tradition as legitimate. Finding someone who is considered to have that skill and that gift to do that, and so then can determine if somebody is a descendant of Aaron, that is the question and something that was very difficult at the time to produce this. And as it so turns out, it's an issue today. Okay, so if you want to go down a little bit of an interesting rabbit hole, you could start researching this, like the concept of, you know, how Jewish people today might determine a literal descendant of Aaron and and then how that relates to the building of the third temple. And 
as you go down that rabbit hole <laughs> and search stuff, you're going to see a lot of things relate back to our tradition because we have a lot of these types of little concepts scattered throughout our religious tradition, obviously, because they were in the mind of, of Joseph Smith and the early saints, and they had questions about them. And so how they fit in with this this new restored faith, they kind of had some ideas about that. And again, I'm not going to go into that, but if somebody wants to go research that, that might be something interesting to do. <laughs> That'd be a whole nother episode. <laughs> Letter Day Peace Studies presents weird biblical stuff. <laughs> presents rabbit holes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but one thing I want to cover real quick, if we jump now to verse 68 in chapter two, they have arrived at Jerusalem, what's left of the temple. And here it says, And some of the chief fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. So that's from the King James Version. But if we read in another version, I have here the New Oxford Annotated Bible, which is the Should be NRSV, revised, what I have. Yeah, New Revised Standard Version. He say, so as soon as they came to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. And I was just wondering, was like, I would think everyone would have wanted to give some kind of offering when they reached Jerusalem. But then made me think about those previous verses that we had talked about, their uh, modest economic standings, how there were some that had servants and maids and people following around singing to them. Perhaps the some who made these free will offerings were the ones that had the better economic standing and could actually give of their surplus. Whereas the others, I'm sure they were probably destitute. Now, they made it by the whatever clothes they had on their back. And so, and just a quick reminder, the free will offering was a sacrifice that was regulated by God's standards according to the Mosaic Law, but it was completely voluntary. It was never something that someone was expected to do, but there were certain rules, like the free will offering, you know, it had to be a male bull, sheep, goat, no physical deformities, blemishes, couldn't have just it from a foreigner. It was only to be made in a place of God's choosing, like temple. And it was appropriate, right, to give the sacrifice during formal feast days. The free will offerings could happen any time. And then that takes us into the beginning of chapter 3. If we look in chapter 3, verse 1 here, starts off telling us that when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. So basically what that's saying is, when the seventh month came, the Israelites, they weren't just only there in Jerusalem, because remember, like Jerusalem was leveled. It was destroyed. And it sounds like that even in 70 years' time, they hadn't really rebuilt. So the Israelites that had come on this refounding expedition, they were in the, the little towns, hamlets, villages in the area. They came together at Jerusalem on this specific day. And I was wondering about that. I was like, what's so important about the seventh month? If we jump back into Leviticus chapter 23, verse 23, as well as look at Numbers chapter 29, verse 1, here we learn about how important this month actually was. I believe it's pronounced Tishri. It's the seventh month. It's marked by holy 
convocations. Like there was much to do about this time, this entire month, there were different things that they were supposed to do at the temple, different sacrifices for different reasons at different times and days. It was basically a month of religious observance. And so I wonder if they possibly, we have no idea when they arrived. I, I could find, at least in Ezra, maybe in some of the other later recounting, they give more detail about that, but I have no idea as to when they arrived in Jerusalem. But the fact that they waited to the seventh month to all gather, and later on in, in chapter 3 here, as they said, they, was it reset the altar upon its bases. I think that was a very not coincidental. <laughs> it was thought out. It was planned. They were wanting to do this because it talks about they kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom, as the duty of every day required. So this was something that they wanted to do as an expression of their faith. Kind of gave, I think, a little bit more insight to why in the previous chapter, in verse 68, where like only some of the heads of the families gave, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. I think the others were maybe holding on and waiting to get the altar set back up so that way they could give their offerings at that time. And I think that's really beautiful. I hadn't made like the connections with all the months and everything. I mean, this is the first thing that they do when they're going to go build the temple is they do the altar first in, mm-hmm. in the spot. Yep. And then they go to start laying the foundations of the temple. And we get these very interesting verses here towards the end of chapter three. They've laid all the foundations and there's the people around watching. This is kind of like the, you know, the groundbreaking ceremony, so to speak, that we do for temples. So there's people gathering around, they've laid the foundations, they've got people together and it says, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of families, old people, who had seen the first house on its foundations, wept with a loud voice when they saw this house, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. I'm going to say a few things about this, and then I'll get your thoughts as well, Kyle. This probably was the most profound part of the reading for me. I read this over and over and was just thinking about it. There's a joyful shout, and then there's the weeping of the old people. And when I first read it, I think at first I thought the weeping was like a weeping for joy. But I realized that it's juxtaposed against the Christ for joy. So the real implication here is that this is not a weeping for joy. It's a weeping for sadness. And I kind of wonder, like, why would they be sad? And as I was reading some of the commentary on this and then looking up some other sources, the temple foundations that they're laying are actually smaller than the previous temple. And so... These old people that knew the size of the previous temple, they knew how it was built. They saw its splendor. Maybe they were little kids. This is not just 
a moment of joy like they like everybody else might think. This is a moment that is really digging up all their trauma from the exile, from the destruction of the temple, then being taken into exile. They're being brought back and they're building this new temple and they're realizing that it's never going to be like it once was. Man, that just hit me. They thought they were coming back to rebuild and they realized it's never going to be the same. It reminded me, I knew there was a psalm about this. I had to go find which one it was. It's Psalm 137. It's not about this specifically, but I think it gives good context to this because it's talking about the sorrow of the exile. And here's Psalm 137. I'm reading out of NRSV. There's other translations of this as well that are, that are really good. But this says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So that these beginning lines of this psalm by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. This just comes out for me when you think about these old people sitting there watching the temple being built and reliving the trauma of their exile realizing that sometimes trauma is so deep that people have a hard time finding joy, even in something that is supposed to be a great joyful thing. Now, here in this moment, as they're laying the foundations, you've got an epistemic reality that's different for the old people than it is from the young, even though that objective reality of where the stones are and what they are and and what they're attempting to do is the same. One people sees this occurrence as this great, joyful, amazing thing. This is the young generation. We've heard tales of the temple. We're finally here and we're building it. Can you imagine like the exuberance over this thing? And then you have this other generation that's realizing it's just not quite what it was. And I think this can teach us something if we ponder, can teach us something about mourning with those that mourn, but also rejoicing with those that rejoice. Because In this circumstance, neither response was wrong or inappropriate. They were both completely appropriate and yet completely opposite. And that to me is so profound and interesting. And there's a lot of different commentaries on this verse. There's one in particular that I wanted to bring up from from some commentary I found on, on Bible Hub. And it was talking about how the mixture of these two sounds, the crying in sorrow and, and then the, the shouting for joy, is a representation of the world that we live in. If you conceptualize heaven as this place of, of joy and shouting for joy, right? And then you conceptualize of hell as this wailing and sorrow, then here on earth, we get both and you don't often distinguish between the two. But if we're still, then we can see sort of that paradox. And I think there's great beauty or depth to the concept there. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. I hadn't even thought about the psalm. That is, wow. I, <laughs> my insight was along the lines of here these old men are that they remember the temple in all its glory and they hadn't been around to Jerusalem in 70 years. I mean, ostensibly, the temple was destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar came in and carried off the children of Israel here, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, right? But someone that would be that old in that time, I guess that was the first thing that I was just like, oh, wow, I guess people really did live <laughs> till old age back then. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess if they were teenagers or even kids at the time, they still would have memories, right? Yeah, yeah, they would. But I mean, that's putting them in their their 80s and 90s in some cases. And it's a long time to be looking forward to something. And when you get there, like you're saying, and they're, they're laying the foundations. Oh, and that was something else. It took them two years to get the foundation laid and have this ceremony, so to speak. This unveiling. I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure if it's like when we break ground for a temple, that kind of ceremony. But I would imagine there's a lot, there's a lot more solemnity to what was happening here. Mm. A lot of emotion. They were looking forward to this. Now that you you talk about that psalm, I can totally see that this older generation just weeping because they could see in their mind's eye what it looked like. Versus what they can actually do while while they're joyous that they're able to once again make, build a temple to their God. Just felt so paltry, right? Yeah. Melancholy nostalgia, you know, just yeah, but, bittersweet but moment, much more right? much more profound than that, you know, deeper feeling. So Yeah. Wow. Uh, but then that brings us into chapter four, right? Yeah, and we had kind of discussed some things from from four already. The the idea mm-hmm. that the their people come and and they were going to offer to help, but they were rejected because they aren't seen as faithful or clean. Maybe they had intermarried with the people of the land. They're called adversaries. You know, they're just not considered part of the community. Right? They're out. They're not in. Oh yeah, I mean, it had to have been such a slap to the face, though, because they approach. The leader, right, Zerubbabel, and <laughs> I'm going to struggle with that this entire episode. <laughs> and they come to him and they're like, hey, we want to help build this temple because we worship the same God. We've been actually sacrificing to him ever since the days of whatever this king's name is, Esar Haddon of Assyria, who brought us here. So maybe this might even be part of the lost tribes of Israel. If they've been brought from a different land... Right by this king, they've been rounded up and more or less deposited here. I don't know. It leaves a possibility that these people had a working knowledge as they worshipped, specifically saying your God. So they know Jehovah. They're familiar with the Jewish customs of the time, especially the religious rites. It leads me to believe that there's a deeper connection than it just being the locals kind of a thing. I don't know. Yeah, so I can I can speak to that a little bit because last time we talked about how when the people were taken into exile, then it said that they they brought in other people that inhabit the land and then they had a problem with lions because they 
They didn't know how to worship the God of the land, so they brought in priests. Well, so remember who's writing this, right? These people are probably not being quoted correctly. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, so if a people come, they're not going to identify themselves as foreigners, right? They're going to say that they belong to the land. So the fact that the text says that they identify themselves as foreigners is probably a red flag. It's probably a clue to us that they were seen as foreigners by the people who wrote the text, but they themselves wouldn't have identified in that way. No, probably and so not. Yeah. These are people that are are the are the kind of people that later get grouped in and called Samaritans because these are apostates. They are not worshiping correctly. They have married foreign wives. You know, they're just they're not doing it right. And so that to me, that's kind of a clue out of the text. When when in the text they self-identify as foreigners, it's probably like a, a big clue that the people that wrote it are trying to to smear them, quote unquote, in some sort of way. So yeah, I, I, there's definitely. I mean, <laughs> you see many instances in the the Bible up to, even to this point of a kind of an us versus them, where they're always otherizing. Yeah this other group and or otherizing demonizing whatever you want to call it they're not being inclusive to god's children they're they're only seeing like no only we are god's chosen people only we are are god's children you can't do that because you were born over there you know kind of a thing yeah i mean i think there's competing mentalities here and the mentality that wins out here among the people is that of maintaining a pure identity. It's because it's what got them through the exile. It's because the Deuteronomists have been teaching them, you know, this is the view that Ezra ends up taking and then ends up teaching the people that they need to keep their culture and their language and their religion pure. And the thing that has polluted that has been them marrying into other cultures because, you know, just just think about like from a practical perspective, if a man takes a wife from another culture, she speaks a different language, maybe she speaks his language, but it's her second language. And so what's she going to speak to her children? She's going to speak her first language to the children. And so they're going to grow up with their first language being hers, not the language of their father. And if their father's Jewish, and, you know, and his language is Hebrew or, 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 well, in this case, a lot of these people, it was Aramaic. In any case, the language would be a different language and she's going to teach them her customs. And so, you know, right away within that first and second generation, you're going to have what they would call a corruption of that tradition. And so that's why they're, they're very, very particular here in these chapters of Ezra. It seems really harsh and and I agree that it is but you kind of you just have to enter back into their mindset of what they're trying to build as a people and as a culture they're trying to reconstruct their community that has been decimated and so one of the ways that they see of doing that is bringing in the culture and tightening the culture and making sure that marriage happens within that culture and all these people that you've married outside send them away send them on their way, even with their children. It's <laughs> just like, yeah. can you oh, imagine man. like a father being like, okay, you know, just like leaving his uh, wife and my leader just oh. says, I've got, you've got to leave, take all the kids and leave with you. I never want to see you again. Like, I don't know what's going on here. I don't, I don't know 
it's hard for me to imagine it happening exactly the way that it describes. I don't know exactly, but we definitely have some very zealous religious reform going on right now. Ezra is a zealot, right? Like he's he's very concerned with bringing these people back to the law of the Torah. In fact, he is a scholar, he's educated, and so he is presumably one of the only people that can understand the law. Most of the people speak Aramaic, which was the language of the Babylonian and then the Persian Empire of the area at the time. They don't know Hebrew anymore, and so Ezra has to teach them the law. So he reads and he teaches them, and we get this concept later in Nehemiah where it talks about how he has to interpret it, and he has to make them understand it and explain it to them. And Ezra is largely credited with starting of that tradition of the reading of the Torah regularly within the community, and then the explanation of it and the commentary on it and all those types of things. This really is brought out of Ezra. He kind of is the father of that tradition, a huge contributor to that concept. I understand that it was a completely different time. Society was very different for them. Culture was very different. It was like everything was out to get them. We talked about this previously where any natural event, disaster or good omen was seen as a direct result of either their faithfulness or their wickedness from from God. And so I understand that mindset. I just, man, it's so harsh. <laughs> I mean, especially in the that next verse there, like here the, the leaders have all gotten together and they tell them, you shall have no part with us in building a house to our God. We alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus of Persia has commanded us. Holy mackerel. <laughs> like, what, like, it <laughs> yep. was like these guys were like, hey, neighbor, you want to, you want me to give you a hand with unloading? And you're just like, no, I don't want you to have any part in touching any of my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, so let, let's think about it in this way. Let's think about like, you know, and, and, and a lot of people may not be this way, but you this might bring it into a little more graspable reach. Say you've got some young men that are preparing the sacrament and you have a bunch of visitors come in just off the street. You know, they're, they're not members of the church, just people walk in and they come up to the table and they say, Hey, can we help out? You say, no, you can't. Right. <laughs> yes. I don't think you would say you shall have no part. like <laughs> <laughs> You would say, no, no, thank right. you. We got it. Yeah. No, no, no. I agree that the, the language. Yeah, 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 yeah. We would be much more diplomatic about it, but the idea is there, right? The idea is there. Yeah. They're establishing their boundaries, yeah. so to speak. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it is what it is. It's a different time. I'm, I'm not going to hold it against them, but man, it's one of those things where like, you guys really have to throw it right back in their face? I mean, because it, it pretty much came back to, it came back to bite them because those people, the people yep. of, of the land, then as it says here, people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They bribed officials yep. to frustrate their plan throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia until the reign of King Darius of Persia. Yeah, so they use all kinds of politics and there's all kinds of shenanigans that goes on that makes this 
building of the temple very difficult. And this whole concept happens later as well with Nehemiah as he comes back to Jerusalem to build Mm -hmm. the wall. And that kind of all comes about, you know, if we move into the book of, of Nehemiah, at the beginning, you know, Nehemiah is the cupbearer for the king of of Persia. And so he's able to be close to the king and petition him, ask him a question. This is a very brave thing to do for a servant to ask the king a question. He's risking death. This actually is reminiscent of Esther that we're going to get to next week, where she comes into the king to to make a petition. But the fact that Nehemiah is there asking something, he's, he's very much risking losing stuff. Well, he gets what he wants. The king sponsors him, gives him like all kinds of money and materials to go back and start building this wall. So this risk paid off. In fact, there's a point where Nehemiah, the king asks him, and then Nehemiah says a prayer right before, you know, he then goes and asks the king. And Nehemiah is kind of this, he's kind of prayerful throughout the book, right? Like all the time he's, he's doing something and then he's like, talking to God and he's saying, remember me, God, remember in this, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do this the right way. And so he, Nehemiah is, is at least sincere in, in anything that he's doing. Oh, for sure. Nehemiah, that was one thing that really stood out to me was his dedication. Maybe it was how it was written, but he comes off as so genuine in all of his prayers. Like you said, they're kind of sprinkled all throughout. Like if we're talking about the timeline here, Right. So if we, we're starting back in the beginning of this, the, the first expedition goes out there. They start the temple. It takes them 20 years to build the temple. And that 20 years is for all sorts of reasons, mostly because of this opposition that they, they keep having to deal with. A lot of it self-inflicted. Right. And then Ezra and his group. They don't come for another 60 years after that. After Ezra's there, Nehemiah, he doesn't show up for 13 years after that. So, like, here we are. We've got 80 and then another 13. We're at 93 years before Nehemiah shows up in the chronological order. But the record wasn't written until even a couple years after that. That's why they put it at about a century after the original events first transpired. So Nehemiah is the central figure of his own book. It contains some of his words and his records, but he himself is not the author of this entire book. They like to think that the same authors probably wrote Nehemiah and portions of Ezra. We talked about how this is also the first time we mentioned this earlier before we began recording, how this is the first time it's first person, right? Yeah, yeah. As far as I can tell, this is the first time first person is used by the actual author in the Old Testament text. Or he's referring to himself and saying, well, I did this and then we did that. This is the first time that that ever happened. And that first that I could see shows up in Ezra chapter 5. And Nehemiah, he has his own first-person narration going on here. The historians peg him arriving in Jerusalem at about 445 BC. But he returned to visit again after everything plays out sometime between 433 and 423. And that's what the 
Nehemiah ends on. So like if we're going with these three stages of the development of Jerusalem and the temple, first they establish the temple, then Ezra comes and they establish more or less like the city of Jerusalem, the people there. And then when Nehemiah comes, he comes and he erects the wall around Jerusalem. He rallies the people, right? He gives this awesome speech, gets everybody riled up, and they start donating all the things that they have available to the building of this wall. And they're able to do it in a ridiculous amount of time, 52 days, right? I I can't mm-hmm. even imagine. As far as I could tell, I didn't see anything saying like, oh, and the wall was, you know, however many cubits high and cubits wide or, or whatever. But you'd imagine, like, if it's a wall to keep people out, it's not just some waist-high little dinky wall. They had to do some massive work together. And he gives all the credit to, to God. He says, we were able to do this because our God was with us. And even during that time, there was a plot to kill Nehemiah, right? Yeah, there are definitely threats that come. And one of the threats is that, hey, we're going to report you for insurrection because you're building a wall. So that must mean that you want to try to resist foreign rule and you're going to set up a king for yourselves. And there's all these accusations against Nehemiah. And Nehemiah's like, you're just making all that up. That's not what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he basically solidifies the community when he starts dealing with the the different things that are going on with it. He has the law read by Ezra. Ezra makes an appearance in here. Speaking of appearances, that was something we kind of quickly glossed over. In Ezra, we have prophets Haggai and Zechariah make kind of these guest appearances. Yeah, cameos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was kind of cool. It's like, oh, hey, look at that's neat. I mean, they don't have a whole lot that that happens, but I think it's just good to point out that they're contemporary here with Ezra and Nehemiah. And and a lot of times, you know, we have these different books in the Bible, not realizing that all of this stuff is happening at the same time. And Ezra and Nehemiah are not considered prophets in the Jewish tradition. They're not even in the text. They're not named as prophets, Ezra and Nehemiah, even though in some ways they do fulfill some of those roles as prophets. They aren't in the prophetic tradition, Jewish wise. But Haggai and Zechariah are, they're named as prophets than this. And then they have their own books, obviously, in the Old Testament. So. Yeah. I mean, you could even say they go to great lengths to remind you that Ezra is not a prophet because they keep referring to him as Ezra the scribe, Ezra the scholar. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That he that he's not a prophet. But, I mean, his impact, personal opinion, right, is definitely that of a prophet is his big moment i feel was in chapters 9 and 10 when they find he finally gets to jerusalem the first thing i'm up to him is like oh hey it's really great that you're here oh by the way these people yeah they they've been intermingling with all the locals and they've taken it says they've taken their daughters for themselves and their sons that the Holy Seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. There's that otherizing language, right? He rends his garment and mantle, plucks the hair off his head and beard, and he sits down astonished. And he sat there for some time and then, like, kneeled down and started praying. Mm. I have no idea where 
this was all happening. I'm assuming this is maybe temple grounds, right? But he starts praying and he offers this beautiful prayer asking for the ability for the Israelites to be his chosen people again and what else can we do and it actually while he's doing all this all these people come around and they're listening and it, it says that this is a very great congregation of men and women and children and the people wept very sore so they're hearing him and they're crying I don't think any tears of joy were shed at this part. They're repenting, right? They're penitent. Yeah, they're being called to repentance through Ezra's prayer here. At that point, they, they make a covenant to put away the things of the world. This is where that language of leave your wives and children and come back to the fold, more or less. And it's, man, it's got to be one heck of a prayer to get someone to say, well, I guess I'll I'll leave my wife that I've... I've got kids with. Holy mackerel. You know, Kyle, before we recorded, you were talking about how this reminded you of in the Book of Mormon where we have Nephi. Oh, yeah. In in third Nephi praying in his garden and all the people gather around. Right. And at first they're doing it confused, but then he does call them to repentance later on. And I had not made the connection at all. I thought that was really interesting connection there. There's a similar story. It is with two different outcomes, right? Yeah. <laughs> Nephi was dragged before the, the lawyers and courts. <laughs> yeah. Something similar happens, not with the prayer, but when we get to the book of Nehemiah in chapter one, when Nehemiah hears about the state of Jerusalem, it says that the wall was broken down, its gates had been destroyed by fire. It says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So kind of like a similar reaction, Ezra hears that the people have been sort of broken down in a metaphorical way, right? And so that he breaks down, he pulls out his hair and, and sits and mourns. And then Nehemiah hears that the city is sort of representation of the community, but Nehemiah is concerned with the physical aspect of the materials of the city. And Ezra is more concerned with the social aspect of the community and its religious identity. But similar types of things going on here. Nehemiah sits down and mourns for days. And so kind of similar stuff going on. When Nehemiah hears this, he sits down and he cries and mourns. Again, for me, evokes Psalm 137, where they're sitting at the rivers of Babylon and and crying, they wept. I want to make one extra note about that. Some of the commentary and, and other translations, like if I look at the altar translation, it says streams, not rivers. And you would think that that's like, okay, well, that's like, that doesn't matter. You could use either yeah. word. Splitting hairs here. kind of it's Splitting thing. hairs. Okay. Well, the reason why it's somewhat important is because, again, Psalm is a poem. And so the Hebrew word does mean rivers, but what they're actually referring to are the irrigation canals that are between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers in Babylon. And so this indicates, this tells us geographically, you know, where the people may have been settled initially by Babylon. Their their jobs were farming within those irrigation canals. So it's just kind of an interesting thing, information that we get out of a single word in this poem in Psalm 137. So... Uh, okay, I guess wrap up here. Nehemiah, right, he gets the community up and running. Ezra reads the law to them from dawn until midday. Everyone's on the same page. They're all committed. It takes off for, I think it's like 12, 13 years. Comes back and 
there have been all sorts of issues. <laughs> One of these outsiders, Tobiah the Ammonite, was actually living inside of the temple. If that's not... The squatter. Yeah. <laughs> Something. I don't know how he finagled his way into there. Because I believe Tobiah is actually like a governor of another province, neighboring province. But here he is living in Jerusalem, in the temple. And when Nehemiah sees it, he's just like, out, out now. And it says that... <laughs> Yeah, and he says he threw out all the furnishings out of the temple (laughs) and had the original, the temple, I guess, furnishings as well, brought back in and reinstitutes the temple and deals with the, the neglect of offerings and that they have like completely abandoned the Sabbath and that they're once again beginning to mingle. Well, not beginning to, they're totally mingling with the the people of the land. Right? So he's got to deal with that problem. And he basically has to, like, set everybody right and do all these temple reforms. I just, you just got to wonder, this poor guy, like, if he wasn't doing like what Ezra did and starting to pull out his own hair. <laughs> I didn't think about it until you were describing it. But, you know, he's going in there and he's he's telling people to leave and he's throwing over tables, right? And and all this stuff. This is... Uh... <laughs> This is kind of a, a Jesus thing here. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. I hadn't even thought of that either. Good point. There's only one more point I wanted to bring out about Nehemiah. There are some other notes that I have about it, but they are repetitions of some other things we've already covered. In chapter 9, verse 18, this is a recounting of Israelite history. If we go back at Deuteronomy, you know, Moses in Deuteronomy is going through and he's recounting all of their history. And so this is... Part of what is being done here in the text is a a recounting of all the history. And at this point in verse 18, this is talking about the episode at Sinai where Aaron casts a golden calf and they worship it. So we get this phrase here in verse 18. I'll read this. Even when they had cast an image of a calf for themselves and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. Okay, so a couple of things. There are two other references to this incident. There's more than this, but two other specific references to this incident that are related to this. The first one is in Exodus itself. And the strange thing about the episode in Exodus is that it posits Aaron as casting this calf. And then he says, Aaron says, these are your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the statement is plural. Aaron is stating it as gods, even though it's only one calf. And it's pointed out by scholars as an oddity because what happens is later when we get to Jeroboam, if you remember Jeroboam, when the 10 tribes split off, there's Jeroboam and Rehoboam and they leave. They don't want to be under Rehoboam. They split off. The text says that Jeroboam made two calves, one in one place and one in the other, And then pronounced to the people, these are your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Exact same phrase that we see in Exodus. What scholars think is going on here is that Jeroboam in the text is being portrayed as a polytheist. And so, whereas Jeroboam may have really only done one, the text says he did two because it's trying to cast him in the worst light possible. And so then it makes it plural, says these are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. Then when 
Exodus was being compiled and redacted, they took this phrase from Jeroboam and they transported it back in time and put it in the mouth of Aaron. So Aaron says, these are your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt, even though there's only a single golden calf, which is so interesting. Well, the reason why that for me has a little more clout, that reasoning that that statement from Jeroboam was transported back into Exodus is because when we get to Nehemiah, we get a different statement. He recounts it differently. He doesn't say gods. He said God, he says, God, this is your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay. So to me, it's like the original text from Aaron actually was a singular God and probably Jeroboam was singular as well. But when they were compiling, redacting the text, they said, no, Jeroboam's a bad guy. He's a polytheist. Let's make it two. And we're going to say God's. And this is referencing back to Aaron, so we have to make the same statement there. So when that was written, it was written as gods instead of God. And then when Nehemiah was written, this is referencing maybe an earlier source or or looking at the story from a different source. And so it says God. And I know that, again, is one of those things that's maybe splitting hairs, but scholars comment on this, and it actually is something significant and interesting that shows us the development of the theology and also the polemics that are going on between the people at a time, especially between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, where they are Rehoboam, the Judah tribe of Judah is accusing the other 10 tribes of idolatry for worshiping multiple gods. That's fascinating. <laughs> it is, isn't it? I mean, wow. I would have never been fascinated by this probably a couple of years ago, but it interests me now. It fascinates me now. <laughs> All right, Kyle, what, what else did you want to bring up from Nehemiah? Do you think is, is important to touch on? Oh, there's, there's so much, but we would be here for another hour. <laughs> and- okay. Okay. Well, I like how Nehemiah ends the book. You know, Nehemiah is kind of in a state of constant prayer from the beginning to the end of this book. Again, he's sincere the last words are, remember me, oh my God, for good. In other words, I've, I've tried to do what I thought was your will. I've tried to do what was right. There, you know, there's sincerity to that. You can feel, you can kind of feel the, some Nehemiah there. It's just this personal touch that this was a real person who, who really tried to, to do what was right. Definitely. Very genuine, very sincere. Thanks again, Kyle, for being willing to come on and record with me. I appreciate your company along the journey of Ezra Nehemiah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity. It was nice to dive a little deeper than, well, not just a little deeper, a lot deeper than I normally (laughs) do in preparation. (laughs) Hopefully this makes you a little more empathetic when you're doing editing. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Okay, well, we'll sign off then for today. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Ben Peterson. And you're Kyle Swingle. Oh, did I need to say that? I'm sorry. (laughs) And I'm Kyle Swingle. (laughs) 